Chapter Two of Living Alone by Stella Benson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The committee comes to magic. I don't suppose for a moment that you know Mitten Island. It is a difficult place to get to. You have to change buses seven times, going from Kensington, and you have to cross the river by means of a ferry. On Mitten Island there is a model village, consisting of several hundred houses, two churches, and one shop. It was the sixth member who discovered, after the committee meeting, that the address on the forsaken broomstick's collar was, Number 100 Beautiful Way, Mitten Island, London. The sixth member, although she was a member of committees, was neither a real expert in, nor a real lover of, doing good. In doing good, I think, we have got into bad habits. We try in groups to do good to the individual, whereas, if good is to be done, it would seem more likely, and more consonant with precedent, that the individual might do it to the group. Without the smile of a treasurer we cannot unloose our purse-strings, without the sanction of a chairman we have no courage, without minutes we have no memory. There is hardly one of us who would dare to give a flannelette nightgown to a factory-girl who had stepped aside, without a committee to lay the blame on, should the factory-girl fortified by the flannelette nightgown, take further steps aside. The sixth member was only too apt to put her trust in committees. Herself she did not trust at all, though she thought herself quite a good creature as selves go. She had come to London two years ago, with a little trunk and a lot of good intentions as her only possessions, and she had paid the inevitable penalty for her earnestness. It is a sad thing to see any one, of naturally healthy and rebellious tendency, stray into the flat path of charity. Gay, heedless young people set their unwary feet between the flowery borders of that path. The thin air of resigned thanks breathed by the deserving poor mounts to their heads like wine. Committees lie in wait for them on every side. Hostels and settlements entice them fatally to break their journey at every mile they run rejoicing to their doom, and I think shall eventually find themselves without escape, elected eternal life-members of the committee that sits around the glassy sea. The sixth member was saved by a merciful inefficiency of temperament from attaining the vortex of her whirlpool of charity. To be in the vortex is, I believe, almost always to see less. The bull's-eye is generally blind. The sixth member was a person who, where social work was concerned, did more or less as she was told, without doing it particularly well. The result, very properly, was that all the work which a committee euphemistically calls organising work was left to her. Organising work consists of sitting in buses bound for remote quarters of London, and ringing the bells of people who are almost always found to be away for a fortnight. The sixth member had been ordered to organise the return of the broomstick to its owner. Perhaps it would be more practical to call the sixth member Sarah Brown. The bereaved owner of the broomstick was washing her hair at Number 100 Beautiful Way, Mitten Island. She was washing it behind the counter of her shop. She was the manageress of the only shop on Mitten Island. It was a general shop, but made a speciality of such goods as happiness and magic. Unfortunately, happiness is rather difficult to get in wartime. Sometimes there was quite a queue outside the shop when it opened, and sometimes there was a card outside, 
saying politely, "'Sorry, it's no use waiting, I haven't any.' Of course the shop also sold sunlight soap, and it was with sunlight soap that the shop-lady was washing her hair, because it was Sunday, and this was a comparatively cheap amusement. She had no money. She had meant to go down to the offices of her employer after breakfast, to borrow some of the salary that would be due to her next week. But then she found that she had left her broomstick somewhere. As a rule, Harold—for that was the broomstick's name—was fairly independent, and could find his way home alone, but when he got mislaid and left in strange hands, and particularly when kindly finders took him to Scotland Yard, he often lost his head. You, in your innocence, are suggesting that his owner might have borrowed another broomstick from stock. But you have no idea what arduous work it is, breaking in a wild broomstick to the saddle. It sometimes takes days, and is not really suitable work for a woman, even in wartime. Often the brutes are savage, and always they are obstinate. The shop-lady could not afford to go to the city by tube, not to mention the ferry fare, which was rather expensive and erratic, not being LCC. Of course a flash of lightning is generally available for magic people. But it is considered not only unpatriotic, but bad form, to use lightning in wartime. The shop was not expecting customers on Sunday but its manageress had hardly got her head well into the basin when somebody entered. She stood up, dripping. "'Is Miss Thelma Bennett Watkins at home?' asked Sarah Brown, after a pause, during which she made her characteristic effort to remember what she had come for. "'No,' said the other. "'But do take a seat. We met last night, you may remember. Perhaps you wouldn't mind lending me one and tuppence to buy two chops for our luncheon. I've got an extra coupon. There's tinned salmon in stock, but I don't advise it." "'I've only got sevenpence, just enough to take me home,' answered Sarah Brown. "'But I can pawn my earrings.' I dare say you have never been in a position to notice that there is no pawn-shop on Mitten Island. The inhabitants of model villages always have assured incomes, and pose as lilies of the field. Sarah Brown and her hostess sat down on the counter, without regret, to a luncheon consisting of one orange, found by the guest in her bag, and divided, and two thin Captain Biscuits from stock. They were both used to dissolving visions of impossible shops. Both were cheerfully familiar with the feeling of light tragedy, which invades you towards six o'clock p.m., if you have not been able to afford a meal since breakfast. "'Now look here,' said Sarah Brown, as she plunged her pocket-knife into the orange. "'Would you mind telling me? Are you a fairy, or a third-floor back, or anything of that sort? I won't register it, or put it on the case-paper, I promise, though if you are superhuman in any way I shall be seriously tempted." "'I am a witch,' said the witch. Now, witches and wizards, as you perhaps know, are people who are born for the first time. I suppose we have all passed through this fair experience. We must all have had our chance of making magic but to most of us it came in the boring beginning of time, and we wasted our best spells on pleosauri, and protoplasms, and angels with flaming swords, all of whom knew magic too, and were not impressed. Witches and wizards are now rare, though not so rare as you think. Remembering nothing, they know nothing, and are not bored. They have to learn everything from the very beginning, except magic, which is the only really original sin. 
To the magic eye, magic alone is commonplace. Everything else is unknown, unguessed, and undespised. Magic people are always obvious, so obvious that we veteran souls can rarely understand them. They are never subtle, and though they are new, they are never modern. You may tell them in your cynical way that today is the only real day, and that there is nothing more unmentionable than yesterday except the day before. They will admire your cleverness very much, but the next moment you will find the witch sobbing over Tennyson, or the wizard smiling at the quaint fancies of Sir Edwin Landseer. You cannot really stir up magic people with ordinary human people. You and I have climbed over our thousand lives to a too dreadfully subtle eminence. In our day, in our many days, we have adored everything conceivable, and now we have to fall back on the inconceivable. We stand our idols on their heads, it is newer to do so, and we think we prefer them upside down. Talking constantly, we reel blindfold through eternity, and perhaps, if we are lucky, once or twice in a score of lives, the blindfolding handkerchief slips, and we wriggle one eye free, and see gods like trees walking. By Jove, that gives us enough to talk about for two or three lives. Witches and wizards are not blinded by having a point of view. They just look, and are very much surprised and interested. All witches and wizards are born strangely, and die violently. They are descended always from old mysterious breeds, from women who wrought domestic magic and perished for its sake, and from men who wrought other magic among lost causes and wars without gain, and fell and died, still surprised, still interested, with their faces among flowers. All men who die so are not wizards, nor are all martyred and adventuring women witches, but all such bring a potential strain of magic into their line. A witch? said Sarah Brown. Of course. I have been trying to remember what broomsticks reminded me of. A witch, of course. I have always wished to be friends with a witch." The witch was unaware that the proper answer to this was, "'Oh, my dear, do let's. Do you know I had quite a crush on you from the first minute?' She did not answer at all, and Sarah Brown, who was tired of proper answers, was not sorry. Nevertheless, the pause seemed a little empty, so she filled it herself, saying pedantically, "'Of course, I don't believe friendship is an end in itself, only a means to an end.' "'I don't know what you mean,' said the witch, after wrestling conscientiously with this remark for a minute. "'Do tell me. Do you know yourself, or are you just saying it to see what it means?' Sarah Brown was obviously damped by this, and the witch added kindly, I bet you tuppence you don't know what this place is." "'A shop,' said Sarah Brown, who was sitting on the counter. "'It is a sort of convent and monastery mixed,' replied the witch. "'I am connected with it officially. I undertook to manage it, yet I forget what the proper word for me is. Not undertaker, is it?' "'Superintendent or secretary,' suggested Sarah Brown, moodily. "'Superintendent, I think.' said the witch. At least I know Peony calls me Soup. Do you live alone?" Yes. Then you ought to live here. This is the only place in the world of its kind. The name of this house is Living Alone. I'll read you the prospectus. 
she fell suddenly upon her knees and began fighting with a drawer. The drawer was evidently one of the many descendants of the sword Excalibur. None but the appointed hand could draw it forth. The witch, after a struggle, passed this test, and produced a parchment covered with large childish printing in red ink. "'My employer made up this,' said the witch, "'and the ferryman wrote it out for us.' This is the prospectus. The name of this house is Living Alone. It is meant to provide for the needs of those who dislike hotels, clubs, settlements, hostels, boarding-houses, and lodgings only less than their own homes, who detest landladies, waiters, husbands and wives, charwomen and all forms of lookers-after. This house is a monastery and a convent for monks and nuns, dedicated to unknown gods. Men and women who are tired of being laboriously kind to their bodies, who like to be a little uncomfortable and quite uncared for, who love to live from week to week without speaking, except to confide their destinations to bus-conductors, who are weary of woolly decorations, aspidistras, and the eternal two generations of roses which riot among blue ribbons on hireling wallpapers, who are ignorant of the science of tipping and thanking, who do not know how to cook, yet hate to be cooked for, will here find the thing they have desired, and something else as well. There are six cells in this house, and no common sitting-room. Guests wishing to address each other must do so on the stairs, or in the shop. Each cell has whitewashed walls, and contains a small deal table, one wooden chair, a hard bed, a tin bath, and a little inconvenient fireplace. No guest may bring into the house more than can be carried out again in one large suitcase. Carpets, rugs, mirrors, and any single garment costing more than three guineas are prohibited. Any guest proved to have made use of a taxi, or to have travelled anywhere first class, or to have bought cigarettes or sweets costing more than three shillings a hundred, or eighteen pence a pound respectively, or to have paid more than three and sixpence, war tax included, for a seat in any place of entertainment, will be instantly expelled. Dogs, cats, goldfish, and other superhuman companions are encouraged. Working guests are preferred, but, if not at work, guests must spend at least eighteen hours out of the twenty-four entirely alone. No guest may entertain or be entertained, except under special license obtainable from the superintendent. There is a pump in the backyard, there is no telephone, no electric light, no hot-water system, no attendance, and no modern comfort whatever. Tradesmen are forbidden to call. There is no charge for residence in this house. "'It certainly sounds an unusual place,' admitted Sarah Brown. "'Is the house always full?' "'Never,' said the witch. "'A lot of people can swallow everything but the last clause. We have at present one guest called Peony.' She replaced the prospectus in the drawer, which she then tried to shut. While she was engaged in this thundering endeavour, Sarah Brown noticed that the drawer was full of the little paper packets, which she had seen the day before in the witch's possession. "'What do you do with your magic?' she asked. "'Oh, many things. Chiefly I use it as an ingredient for happiness, sometimes to remind people, and sometimes to make them forget. It seems to me that some people take happiness rather tragically.' I find, said Sarah Brown, rather sententiously, that I always owe my happiness to earth, never to heaven. How do you mean heaven? 
said the witch. "'I know nothing about heaven. When I used to work in the city, I bought a little book about heaven to read in the tube every morning. I thought I should grow daily better, but I couldn't see that I did.' Sarah Brown was naturally astonished to meet any one who did not know all about heaven. But she continued the pursuit of her ideas on happiness. Sarah Brown meant to write a book some day, if she could find a really inspiring exercise-book to start in. She thought herself rather good at ideas. Poor Sarah Brown! She simply had to be confident about something. She was only inwardly articulate, I think, not outwardly at all, but sometimes she could talk about herself. "'Heaven has given me wretched health, but never gave me youth enough to make the wretchedness adventurous,' she went on. "'Heaven gave me a thin skin, but never gave me the natural and comforting affections. Heaven probably meant to make a noble woman of me, by encrusting me in disabilities, but it left out the necessary nobility at the last moment. It left out, in fact, all the compensations. But luckily I have found the compensations for myself. I just had to find something. Men and women have given me everything that such as I could expect. I have never met with reasonless enmity, never met with meanness, never met with anything more unbearable than natural indifference from any man or woman. I have been, I may say, a burden and a bore all over the world. I have been an ill and fretful stranger within all men's gates. I have asked much and given nothing. I have never been a friend. Nobody has ever expected any return from me, yet nothing was grudged. Landladies, policemen, chorus girls, social bounders, prostitutes, the natural enemies, one would say, of such as I, have given me kindness, and often much that they could not easily spare and always amusement and distraction. "'Ah, how you interest and excite me!' said the witch, whose attention had been, frankly, wandering. "'You are exactly the sort of person we want in this house.' "'But ill,' said Sarah Brown, pessimistically. "'Oh, witch! I have been so wearisome to every one, so constantly ill. The first thing I get to know about a new hostess or a landlady is always the colour of her dressing-gown by candlelight or whether she has one. "'Illnesses are never bad here,' said the witch. "'I bet you tuppence I've got something in the shop that would make you well. Three fingers of happiness, neat and hot, at night.' "'But which? Oh, which? This is the worst of all. My ears are failing me. I think I'm going deaf.' "'You can hear what I say,' said the witch. "'Yes, I can hear what you say. But when most people talk I am like a prisoner locked up and every day there are more and more locked doors between me and the world. You do not know how horrible it is." "'Oh, well,' said the witch, "'as long as you can hear magic you will not lack a key to your prison. Sometimes it's better not to hear the other things. You are the ideal guest for the house of living alone." "'I'll go and fetch David my dog and Humphrey my suitcase,' said Sarah Brown. At that moment a taxi was heard to arrive at the other side of the ferry and the ferryman's voice was heard shouting, "'All right, all right, I'll be there in half a tick.' "'I hope this isn't Peony in a taxi,' said the witch. "'I get so tired of expelling guests. She's been drawing her money, which may have been tempting.' They listened. They heard someone alight from the ferry-boat, and the voice of Miss Meta Mostyn Ford asking the ferryman, "'Do you know anything about a young woman of the name of Watkins living at number one hundred, beautiful way?' "'No, he doesn't!' 
shouted the witch, opening the shop door. "'But do step in. We met yesterday, you may remember. I'll ask the ferryman to get half a dozen halfpenny buns for tea, if you'll be so kind as to lend me threepence. We don't bake ourselves.' "'I have had tea, thank you,' said Miss Ford. "'I have just come from a little gathering of friends on the other side of the river, and I thought I would call here on my way home. I had noted your address.' She started as she came in and saw Sarah Brown, and added in her committee voice, "'I had noted your address because I never mind how much trouble I take in following up a promising case.' Sarah Brown, on first hearing that trenchant voice, had lost her head, and begun to hide under the counter. But the biscuit-tins refused to make room, so she drew herself up and smiled politely. "'How good of you to go to a little gathering of friends,' said the witch obviously trying to behave like a real human person. "'I never do, except now and then, by mistake. And even then I only stay when there are grassy sandwiches to eat. Once there were grassy sandwiches mixed with bits of hard-boiled egg, and then I stayed to supper. You didn't have such luck, I see, or you would look happier.' "'I don't go to my friends for their food, but for their ideas,' said Miss Ford. Sarah Brown was gliding towards the door. "'Oh, don't go,' said the witch who did not recognise tact when she met it. "'I have sent Harold the broomstick for your dog David and your suitcase Humphrey. He is an excellent packer and very clean in his person and work. Please, please don't go. Do you know, I live in constant dread of being left alone with a clever person.' "'I must apologise for my intrusion in that case,' said Miss Ford with dignity. "'I repeat, I only came because I saw yours was an exceptional case.' There was a very long silence in the growing dusk. The moon could already be seen through the glass door, rising, pushing vigorously aside the thickets of the crowded sky. A crack across the corner of the glass was lighted up, and looked like a little sprig of lightning plucked from a passing storm and preserved in the glass. Miss Ford suddenly began to talk in a very quick and confused way. Any sane hearer would have known that she was talking by mistake that she was possessed by some distressingly anti-Ford spirit, and that nothing she might say in parenthesis like this ought to be remembered against her. "'Oh, God!' said Miss Ford. "'I have come because I am hungry, hungry for what you spoke of last night in the dark. You spoke of an April sea. Clashing of cymbals was the expression you used, wasn't it? You spoke of a shore of brown diamonds flat to the ruffled sea, and white sandhills under a thin veil of grass, and tamarisks all blown one way.' "'Well?' said the witch. "'Well,' faltered Miss Ford, "'I think I came to ask you whether you knew of nice lodgings there, plain wholesome bath, respectable cooking, hot and cold.' Her voice faded away pathetically. There was a sudden shattering as the door burst open, and a dog and a suitcase were swept in by a brisk broomstick. "'I'm so sorry, Miss Watkins,' said Miss Ford stiffly. Her face was scarlet, neat and formal again now, but scarlet. "'I'm so sorry if I have talked nonsense. I'm rather run down, I think. Too much work. Four important meetings yesterday. I sometimes think I shall break down. I have such alarming nerve-storms.' She looked nervously at Sarah Brown. It is always tiresome to meet fellow members of committees in private life, especially if one is in a mood for having nerve-storms. People may be excellent in a philanthropic way, of course, and yet impossible socially. But Sarah Brown had heard very little. 
she always found Miss Ford's voice difficult. She was on her knees asking her dog David what it had felt like coming. But David was still too much dazed to say much. "'You must not think,' said Miss Ford, "'that because I am a practical worker I have no understanding of inner meanings. On the contrary, I have perhaps wasted too much of my time on spiritual matters. That is why I take quite a personal and special interest in your case. I had a great friend, now in the trenches, alas, who possessed power. He used to come to my Wednesdays. At least I used to invite him to come, but he was dreamy like you, and constantly mistook the date. He helped me enormously, and I miss him. Well, the truest charity should be anything but formal, I think, and I saw at a glance that your case was exceptional, and that you were also a cult." "'How do you mean, a cult?' asked the witch. "'Do you mean just knowing magic?' "'A strange mixture,' mused Miss Ford, self-consciously. It is impossible to muse aloud without self-consciousness. "'A strange and rather interesting mixture of naivety and power. The question is, power to what extent?' "'Miss Watkins, I want you to come to one of my Wednesdays, to meet one or two people who might possibly help you to a job—lecturing, you know. Lectures on hypnotism or spiritualism, with experiments, are always popular. You certainly have power. You only want a little advertisement to be a real help to many people.' "'How do you mean, advertisement?' asked the witch. "'This new advertisement stunt is one of the problems that tire my head. I am awfully worried by problems. The world seems to be ruled by posters now. People look to the hoardings for information about their duty. Why don't we paste up the Ten Commandments on all the walls and all the buses and be done with it?" "'Now listen, Miss Watkins,' persisted Miss Ford. "'I want you to meet Bernard Tovey, the painter, and Ivy McBee, who founded the Aspiration Club, and Frere, the editor of I Wonder, and several other regular Wednesday friends of mine, all interested in the occult. It would be a real opportunity for you. "'I am afraid you will be very angry with me,' said the witch presently, in a hollow voice. "'If I was a cult last night, I'm awfully sorry, but it must have been a fluke. I seem to have said so much last night without knowing it. I'm afraid I was showing off a little.' The painful tears of confession were in her eyes, but she added, changing the subject. "'Do you live alone?' "'Yes, absolutely,' said Miss Ford. My friends call me a perfect hermit. I hardly ever have visitors in my spare room. It makes so much work for my three maids." "'I suppose you wouldn't care to divorce your three maids and come and live here?' suggested the witch. "'I could, of course, cure you of the nerve-storms you speak of. Or rather, I could help you to have nerve-storms all the time, without any stagnant grown-upness in between. Then you wouldn't notice the nerve-storms. This house is a sort of nursing-home and college combined. I'll read you the prospectus.' "'Very amusing,' said Miss Ford, after waiting a minute to see if there was any more of the prospectus. She had quite recovered herself, and was wearing the brisk acute expression that deceived her into claiming a sense of humour. "'But why all those uncomfortable rules? And why that discouragement of social intercourse? I am afraid the average person of the class you cater for does not recognise the duty of social intercourse.' "'This house,' replied the witch caters for people who are outside averages. The ferryman says that people who are content to be average are lowering the general standard. I wish you could have met Peony, the only guest up to now, but she is out, and maybe a teeny bit drunk when she comes in. She has gone to draw her money." "'What sort of money?' asked Miss Ford, 
who was always interested in the sources of income of the poor. "'Soldier's allotment! Unmarried wife!' The expression of Miss Ford's face tactfully wiped away this bald, unfortunate statement from the surface of the conversation. "'And how do you make your boarding-house pay?' she asked. "'If there is no charge for residence—' "'How do you mean pay?' asked the witch. "'Pay whom? And with what?' "'Look here. If you will come and live here you shall have a little Wednesday every week on the stairs, under licence from me. Harold the broomstick is apt to shirk cleaning the stairs, but as it happens he is keeping company with an O-cedar mop in Kentish Town, and I've no doubt she would come over and do the stairs thoroughly every Tuesday night. Besides, we have overalls in stock at only two and eleven three. "'Oh, I like your merry mood,' said Miss Ford, laughing heartily. "'You must remember to talk like that when you come to my Wednesdays. Most of my friends are utter socialists, and believe in bridging as far as possible the gulf between one class and another, so you needn't feel shy or awkward." The splashing of the ferry-boat was once more heard, and then the shop quaked a little as a heavy foot alighted on the landing-stage. The ferryman was heard saying, "'I don't know any party of that name, but I believe the young woman at the shop can help you.' Lady Arabel Higgins entered the shop. "'What, Meta, you here? And Sarah Brown? What a too dreadfully funny coincidence! Well, Angela dear, I made a note for your address yesterday, and then lost the note, too dreadfully like me. So I rang up the mayor, and he said he had also made a note, and he would come and show me the way. But I didn't wait for him. I wanted to talk to you about—well, I must truly be going,' interrupted Sarah Brown. "'I'll just nip across to the Brown Borough and find a pawn-shop, being hungry.' "'There is no need for any one to move on my account,' said Lady Arabel. "'You all heard what Angela said last night in her little address to the committee in the dark. I don't know why she addressed her remarks particularly at me, but as she did so there is no secret in the matter. Of course, just at first it seemed dreadful to me that any one should know or speak about it. I cannot understand how you knew Angela. I am trying not to understand.' She took up a thin Captain Biscuit, and bit it absent-mindedly. It trembled in her hands like a leaf. "'Yes, it is true that Richard doesn't like other women's boys. You know it, Meta. Angela evidently knows it, and at least since yesterday I know that I know it. His not being able to read or write. I always knew in my heart that my old worn-out tag, we can't all be literary geniuses, didn't meet the case. His way of disappearing and never explaining. Do you know, I have only once seen him with other boys, doing the same as other boys, and that was when I saw him marching with hundreds of real boys, in 1914. It was the happiest day I ever had. I thought, after all, that I had borne a real boy. Well, then, as you know, he couldn't get a commission, couldn't even get his stripe, poor darling. He deserted twice, pure absence of mind. It was always the same from a child. I wanted to see further, he'd say, and of course worse in the trenches. Why, you know it all, Angela, dear, at least perhaps not quite all. I should like to tell you, because you said that about the splendour of being the mother of Richard. Pinehurst, my husband, he is a doctor, you know, had that same passion for seeing further. He was often ill in London. I said it was asthma, but he said it was not being able to see far enough. We were in America for Richard's birth, and Pinehurst insisted on going west. I took the precaution of having a good nurse with me. Pinehurst said the East was full of little obstacles, 
and people's eyes had sucked all the secrets out of the horizon, he said. I like Cape Cod, but he said there was always a wall of sea round those flat, wet places. We stayed in a blacksmith's spare room on the desert of Wyoming, but even that horizon seemed a little higher than we, and one clear day, in a pink sunrise, we saw something that might have been a dream, my dears, and might have been the Rockies. Pinehurst couldn't stand that. We pushed west, so tarsome. We climbed a little narrow track up a mountain, in a light buggy that a gold-miner lent us. Oh, of course, you'll think us mad, Meta, but do you know, we actually found the world's edge, a place with no horizon. We looked between ragged pine-trees, and saw over the shoulders of great old violet mountains, we saw right down into the stars for ever. There was a tower of rocks, rose-red rocks in sloping lairs, sunny hot by day, my dears, and a great shelter by night. You know, the little dark clouds walk alone upon the mountain-tops at sunset. As you said, Angela, they are like trees, and sometimes like faces, and sometimes like the shadows of little bent gypsies. I used to look at the mountains and think, what am I about, to be so worried and so small, in sight of such an enormous storm of mountains under a gold sky? I think of those rocks often at night, standing just as we left them, all by themselves, under that unnatural moon. It was an unnatural moon on the edge of the world there, all by themselves with no watching eyes to spoil them, as Pinehurst used to say, not even one's own eyes. You'll say that adventure, my one adventure, was impossible, Meta. Yes, it was. Richard was an impossible boy, born on an impossible day, in an impossible place. Ah, oh, my poor Richard! My dears, I am talking dreadful nonsense. We were mad. You'd have to know Pinehurst, really, to understand it. Alas, we can never find our mountain again. I can never forgive Pinehurst." "'You can never repay Pinehurst,' said the witch." Lady Arabel did not seem to hear. For a long time there was nothing to be heard but Sarah Brown, murmuring to her dog David. You must excuse her, and remember that she lived most utterly alone. She was locked inside herself, and the solitary barred window in her prison wall commanded only a view of the dog David. Richard's mother said at last, "'I really came to tell you that Richard came back on leave unexpectedly last night. Of course you must meet him.' "'Richard home?' exclaimed Miss Ford. "'How odd! I was just telling Miss Watkins about his power, and how strongly she reminded me of him. Do tell him to keep Wednesday afternoon free." Lady Arabel, ignoring Miss Ford by mistake, said to the witch, "'Will you come on Tuesday to tea or supper?' "'Supper, please,' said the witch, instantly. Tact, I repeat, was a stranger to her. So she added, "'I will bring Sarah Brown, too. I bet you tuppence she hasn't had a decent meal for days.' And then the mare arrived. The witch saw at once that there was some secret understanding between him and her that she did not understand. Her magic escapades often left her in this position. However, she winked back hopefully. But she was not a skilled winker. Everybody, even the dog David, saw her doing it, and Miss Ford looked a little offended. End of chapter 2